Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host Simon Skidmore. In this series we've been studying the book of Judges which is set before the establishment of the Israelite monarchy with no king to unite the people and lead them in a positive direction, the Israelites fall into a repeating cycle of sin, suffering, repentance, and restoration as they imitate the worship practices of the people around them. Let's continue reading from chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebohamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods." Again, we are told that the Lord left the Canaanites dwelling in the land to test Israel, rather than driving them out as he previously promised to do. As we discussed in the last episode, the Canaanites become models for the Israelites. Israel's faithfulness to the Lord will now be tested. Will Israel hold fast to the Mosaic law, or will they forsake the divine law to imitate their Canaanite neighbours? The text also suggests the niggly Canaanites were left in the land to teach the newer generation how to fight. Remember, the Israelites are called to unify around the Mosaic law and vent their mimetic violence outwards upon their Canaanite neighbours. To this end, the law fortifies the distinction between the Canaanites and the Israelites through the provision of strict ritual and cultural boundary markers. However, They ultimately fail the test by forsaking the law and imitate the worship of their Canaanite neighbours. By these means, the Israelites become indistinguishable from the Canaanites around them, even intermarrying with them. With the law removed, mimetic rivalry sweeps throughout the land, culminating in a mimetic crisis as everyone engages in mimetic violence with everyone else. Yet, as we read on, we see Othniel, the son of Kenes from the tribe of Judah. You might recall we met him in the last episode. He is raised up to deliver the people from the crisis. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim for eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel the son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave 
Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathaim. So the land had rest for forty years. Then Othiel, the son of Kenaz, died. Othniel's story illustrates the cycle of sin, suffering, repentance, and deliverance repeated throughout the book of Judges. The people reject the lord of mimetic rivalry, and Cushan, Rishathaim, whose name stems from the Hebrew word for guilt and godlessness, steps into the void. For eight years, the people of Israel suffer the consequences of their own infidelity. The people groan and cry out to the Lord, which echoes the same language used at the beginning of the Exodus narrative. Israel have escaped Pharaoh's yoke, only to find themselves enslaved to their own mimetic desire in the land of Canaan. Just as he did in the Exodus story, the Lord hears the cry of the Israelites and raises up a Moshiach, literally a saviour. The word Moshiach comes from the root Yasha, from which we also get the name Joshua. In other words, these tribal heroes become like little Joshuas who unite the local people and deliver them from the nasty Canaanites. Like Joshua and Moses before them, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon these tribal heroes and empowers them to vent their community's collective violence upon their enemies. By these means, Othniel conquers and subdues the people's infidelity to restore peace in the land. The judges are actually scapegoats who manage to survive and transform the people's veneration into real power by killing surrogate victims in their stead. In the midst of a mimetic crisis, the scapegoat mechanism prompts the people to search for a scapegoat against whom they can band together and vent their collective violence. As a scapegoat in waiting, Othniel must find a surrogate victim, otherwise the angry mob may turn against him. Harnessing the spirit of mimetic violence, Othniel manages to unite the people against Kushan Rishathaim and kill him. The community load the burden of their guilt and infidelity upon this Kushite who is blamed as the cause of their crisis. Once the community have vented their collective violence upon the scapegoat Kushite, the crisis is resolved and the Israelites experience peace for a period of 40 years. Scholars view Othniel as an ideal judge, under whom the people enjoy a prolonged period of peace. As we read on, the judges begin to get more quirky and eventually downright erratic and sinful. And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself Ammonites and Mamalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. He presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. 
And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself repented from the idolatry near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message from you, O king. And he commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, and took the sword out of his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and dung came out. When Ehud went out into the porch, and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of his cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the earth. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Serah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, for he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after them and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After 40 years of peace, Eglon arises and unites the Ammonites and Amalekites who attack the people of Israel. The name Eglon stems from the Hebrew word Ajel, which describes a bull or a calf. Like a sacred bull, which has gorged itself on the offerings of its devotees, we are told that Eglon is a very fat man. We see here another allusion to the Exodus narrative, specifically the metallic calf incident of Exodus chapter 32. In that story, a mimetic crisis threatens to destroy the community when the people abandon Moses as their leader and fabricate a metallic calf to worship. The calf was also a symbol of Baal, the Canaanite storm god. Supposing Moses to be dead, the people imitate the Baal worship they have seen performed by their Canaanite neighbours. Now in Judges 3, the Israelites are defeated and ruled by Eglon, Baal's representative on earth, when they repeat the sin of their ancient ancestors. Abandoning the Mosaic law, Israel do evil in the sight of the Lord, as they worship the Baal and Asherah, just like the Moabites, Ammonites, and Amalekites. Again, the people have become enslaved to their own idolatry and cry out to the Lord for someone to deliver them. In response to their cries, the Lord raises up Ehud, whose name could be translated as Majestic Brother, which again points forward to a saviour king who will deliver Israel from their oppressors. However, in many ways, Ehud does not fit the stereotype of the Davidic saviour king. We are told Ehud is the son of Gerar, that is, a foreigner, 
yet he is also a Benjamite. In other words, Ehud is a result of one of these forbidden unions between a woman from the tribe of Benjamin and a Canaanite foreigner. This detail places Ehud on the margin of the Israelite community, which makes him vulnerable to scapegoating. Ehud also stands out because he is left-handed. Later in the book of Judges, the other tribes of Israel band together and fight against the tribe of Benjamin, who is able to rally a formidable army of 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. When we read the description of Ehud as a left-handed Benjamite against this backdrop with a foreign father, he becomes a potential scapegoat with a dangerous mastery of violence. To survive the crisis, Ehud must provide a surrogate victim, lest the community band together and execute him. By repenting from his idolatry, Ehud manages to survive and bring an end to the crisis. After offering a minkar to Eglon, that is a sacred offering, translated as tribute in this text, Ehud repents from his idolatry and slays the symbol of Baal's oppression over the people. Ehud tells Eglon that he has a message to deliver from God, which sees the king dethroned and slain in a most violent manner. When Ehud stabs Eglon in the belly, dung flows out, which graphically depicts the character of this sacred overlord. As Baal's representative on earth, Eglon grows fat by consuming the people's wealth and substance and turning it into, well, excuse the language, shit. Through these violent actions, Ehud frees his people from the grip of Baal worship by exposing its true nature. Yet Eglon's devoted servants remain outside, from the gory spectacle, unable to perceive the futility of their own idolatry. Eventually overcome by the stench of feces, they assume Eglon is merely relieving himself in his cool upper chamber. Finally, the servants open the door to see their king dead on the floor, literally on the earth or ground. Even though their idol has fallen from the lofty heights of the elevated upper chamber and now lays humbled, dead in the dirt, his servants remain paralyzed in their idolatry, seemingly unable to repent. This paralysis allows Ehud to escape as he moves beyond the idols of Gilgal to Serah. Having forsaken the idols of Gilgal and returned to his people in Ephraim, Ehud rallies the people and declares war upon Moab. In the midst of the crisis, Ehud identifies the Moabites as the cause of the people's distress. The scapegoat mechanism then prompts the entire community to imitate Ehud's allegation as the people band together against their Moabite enemies. In their fury, the people of Israel vent their collective rivalries upon the Moabites, killing 10,000 men. Having purged the rivalry and violence from the community, the people experience a transcendent sense of peace, which lasts 80 years. Although Ehud was not the deliverer anyone expected, the Lord raised him up to deliver the Israelites out of their own idolatry and usher in a period of peace, twice as long as the 40 years the people enjoyed under Othniel. By these means, Ehud manages to delay his own execution and transforms the people's veneration into genuine political power.
Through this power, Othniel subdues the land, which is also the calling given to humanity in Genesis chapter 1, as they are called to fill the land and subdue it. By repenting from his own idolatry and harnessing and venting the power of mimetic violence upon his enemies, Ehud fulfills this ancient human calling. Judges 3 concludes with a brief reference to another deliverer, Shamgar, the son of Anath. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Shamgar's name suggests that he was not a follower of the Lord. He is described as the son of Anath, who was a Canaanite fertility and war goddess, which either describes his deity or his role as a warrior. Also, the name Shamgar appears to be derived from Shamik Ari, translated as given by the deity Shamik, the Hurrian sun god. So two Canaanite gods are credited with raising up Shamgar, which sets him apart from the other judges who are empowered by the Lord of mimetic violence. The brief introduction to Shamgar is inserted here as an explanatory note to Judges chapter 5 verse 6, part of the Song of Deborah. This ancient poem most likely predates the rest of the book of Judges and refers to the reign of the pagan judge Shamgar. In so doing, this text represents a small and awkward remnant of Israel's polytheistic past in Canaan before the Yahwistic monotheism championed throughout the rest of the book united and dominated the region. Empowered by Shamik and Anath, Shamgar supernaturally saves the people by killing 600 Philistines with an ox goad, a tool used to train and control livestock. This odd choice of weapon for a valiant warrior suggests a lack of metal swords and spears, the same situation described in 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 19 which reads, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. So wherever this Shamgar comes from, he seems to be situated in the same world as Samuel, in which Israel were controlled and dominated by the Philistines, who limited their supply of metallic objects. Shamgar's story comes from a different time and setting to that of Ehud, who appears to be a metalsmith himself who fabricates his own two-edged sword. In any case, Shamgar's inclusion into the book of Judges continues the theme of divine deliverance arising from an unexpected person. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.